Now, years ago, the way you uh, they verified, argument saying there was a piece of work that had to be done. Now, you're going to get made. Let's see if you could do the work. They would send you with another made guy, and you would have to do the work. Mm-hmm. And the made guy would come back and say, he did it, no problem, fine. But if you didn't do the work, the made guy who was with you would do the work and do you also. Yeah. That's the way it was. They would take you out also because now we can't trust you. The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime and Entertainment. I'm your host, Hollywood Wave. Now, we hope everybody enjoyed our episode last week with Dave Acovetti. What a fun conversation that was. That man's got his hands in all sorts of things down there in Florida, and we here at Crime and Entertainment wish him nothing but the best going forward with Club TV, his movie projects with Ciro DiPaggio, another Crime and Entertainment former guest. So we wish all those guys nothing but the best. Now, today... Folks, this has been an interview I've been looking forward to for quite a while. We have in the studio Anthony Ramundi. Now, Anthony has been on some of the biggest platforms there are to tell his story, that including Vlad TV and Cinna Mills. And I don't think I've ever seen a person uh, to his stature that's had such a lightning rod to his story for controversy. Um, you know, he's got pages dedicated to you know, debunking the things he says. He's got pages dedicated, you know, to people just calling him a liar and all this, that, and other. And I, I'll be honest with you. I, I see a lot of truth in what he says. You know, do I know for everything for sure to be a hundred percent fact? No, there's no way. I've never lived in New York. I was, wasn't even alive when half the shit he said went down, but I, I would like to think I'm a pretty decent reader of people. And I believe a lot of the stuff that he is saying is genuine. I'm going to leave that up to you guys as the listeners. You take a listen, see what he says, see if you agree with it. And, you know, one thing I'll tell you about Ramundi, he's an excellent storyteller. Um, You know, he can tell a story like nobody's business. And we're probably going to have to sit down again with him a little bit later on in the future to tie up some other questions that I had for him. Because this one, we kind of cover his life, his life in the mob. But there's a ton of other questions I want to get to with him. Because he's such an excellent storyteller. He's got so many great stories. We cover a lot in this one. But I think we're probably going to have to sit down in a few weeks and do a part two. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that, depending on where you're listening. If you're over on the YouTubes or if you're on the audio side of things. But let's not waste any time, folks. Let's get right into it here with our guest, Anthony Ramundi, here on Crime and entertainment ladies and gentlemen welcome back to crime and entertainment today we have a very interesting guest i've been waiting to get this man on the show for a long time we finally made it happen he is none other than anthony salvatore luciano ramundi straight out of brooklyn anthony welcome to the show my friend how you doing my pleasure good how's everything good Hey, man, we're hanging in there, doing the best we can. You know, uh, we got the COVID still yeah, hanging around a little bit. It's got a few people sick, uh, battling. Hopefully, we can put this shit behind us here real soon, man. I'm hoping, man. I'm hoping. 
Now, now, where are you at right now in New York? I'm in Brooklyn. You're in Brooklyn. Okay. So yeah. we're, this is your first time on the show. So since it's your first time, we're going to start from the beginning, like normal, kind of work our way current. Um, because you got so much story. We're probably definitely going to have to do a few episodes, uh, to, <laughs> to get it all in, you know, maybe even more than that. Uh, yeah. so we'll start, we're going to go with your grandfather. Most time we start with people's father and them, them coming up. We're going to go all the way back to your grandfather. Your grandfather was part of the black hand. And for people that don't really know what that means, Excuse me, both of them, what? Both, both of them, them what? both of your fathers, what? Okay. So for our listeners that don't really know maybe what the black hand means and just how influential and important and, and ruthless the black hand was even compared to the mob kind of break that down for our listeners of how the black hand worked back in the day. Originally when it started, it was supposed to have been to protect the people in the villages and in the towns against like bandits or whatever. Right. But then as a, uh, I guess you'll call it progress or as time went by, the, you know, areas were building up. They realized, you know, Hey, we can get paid for what we're doing for our protection. And then, and that's what they would do. They would charge people protection money. Then they started when uh, horse races, sports, you know, as, as time progressed on and on. But the black hand, which is the real, if you want to call it Cosa Nostra, you want to call it mafia, call whatever, they're the real guys there. In other words, these guys here, I'll explain to you the way they are. They don't take no nonsense. They do not acknowledge, from Italy, they do not really acknowledge New York. Right. They do not acknowledge the United States organized crime because they say most of the people in New York, in the United, well, I guess in New York, in the United States organized crime, they don't follow the rules anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're rule district. Now, the black hand, what it was, was they would have either put cold dust or dirt or something on their hand, and they would Leave put the it on print. a piece of paper, their handprint, or on a door. That was the black hand. When you got that, you had problems. Yeah. You had a problem. All right. Somebody was going to die. Or somebody was going to disappear and they'd find them in pieces somewhere. These guys were the real deal. If they couldn't get you, they would take your family out. They did not care. Wow. They didn't care. Mother, father, sisters, brothers, babies, they didn't care. They'll kill everybody. This is the way they were. That's how strict they were. And everybody, and being they were so strict, everybody fell in line. In other words, all the members fell in line. People in the neighborhoods, nobody ratted. They all fell in line. Well, they knew you rat. Okay, that's fine. You go to protection, which is protection or whatever. I can't get you. You have a whole family. We'll wipe out your whole family. And let me tell you, in back in Sicily, they wiped out whole families to get to a guy. I mean, literally wiped out the family where they were gone. Nothing left. Then nothing like New York. Like, well, I keep saying New York. Let me rephrase it. They're nothing like the United States organized crime or mafia or people want to call it the Cosa Nostra. Because it sounds so gangsterish when they say Cosa Nostra. Like they make people think they know what they're talking about when they have no freaking idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's nothing to keep people in line no, no. like what you're talking about. I mean, there's nothing that, uh, you know, will keep people in line more knowing that that's the lengths that these people will go. Um, yeah. So that's your grandparents. So now your parents, uh, or your father right. rather, he was a very, very well-respected guy. We've even got confirmation from right. someone that we might kind of step on a little bit later. Who's That's confirmed right, from Liz. Yeah. From yeah. Liz Coppola. Liz called me today. Yes. And yeah. I want to shout out to, to Liz Coppola. Yes. Shout out to Liz as well. She kind of brokered this meeting between us and 
Uh, yes. you know, she does a fantastic job there. So shout out to her, mm -hmm. but your father is, is recognized well-respected as well. Might I add as a heavy hitter in the mob. So tell us a little bit about growing yeah. up with your father. My father, all right. My father was an animal lover. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was the type of guy he'd cry when last you go off the air. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. He loved animals. My father. Well, my father, I know he used to get up early more, every morning, get up about maybe 3.30. He'd leave about 4.30 and go to the piers and go to work. He was a longshoreman by trade. Or his legitimate job, let's put it that way. And he used to go down to Furman Street in Brooklyn on Atlantic Avenue. I never heard my father raise his voice. My father never raised his voice. I mean, he might have maybe, maybe like if he was calling you across the street, you would hear him yell, but... When he got angry, he never raised his voice, my father. I could never understand that with him. Anyway, one day, we were outside the house down in South Brooklyn on 12th Street. Me and my father were talking. Some guy's walking up the block, and he's got a little dog, a Sheltie Collie, he was called. And he's got a wire around the dog's neck. He's dragging the dog. You hear the dog crying. My father walks out of the gate, and my father says, hey. He goes, I'll buy the dog off you. My father goes, I'll give you $100. The guy, no, I'll give you this. My father went to $500. $500. The guy grabs the wire, picks it up. He's hanging, trying to hang the dog off the wire. He goes, I'll kill this dog. My father hit him so hard, my father knocked him right on the floor. My father got the dog, gave me the dog. I took the wire off. He goes, get the dog and take it to the vet. He goes, take it inside and clean it up. The dog was like shaking. I'm cleaning up the dog. My father beat this guy. He put him in a coma. That's how bad my father beat him. Now, my father was six feet tall, 175 pounds. My father had hands like atomic bombs. He hit you, you felt it. His hands were so big, my father, for a man skinny like him, but that was from all his years of working in the piers. I come out, and I see my father wailing on this guy, and I just stood there like this. All the neighbors seen him. Nobody interfered. Boom. This guy was a mess. They had to get an ambulance for this guy. The cops come. They say, hey, Frank, what's going on? He goes, Frankie, what happened? He goes, the guy came on my property. He goes, the guy tried to attack me. He goes, so I did what I had to do. They said, okay. They got him, took him to the hospital. The guy died later on. The guy definitely died later on in the hospital. But my father, wow. yeah, my father beat him to death. Literally, my father beat him to death. Wow. The guy died, I think, about a week later. And they were saying, you know, you had this one DA, which I didn't tell you last time. Oh, I'm going to bring charges. He said, can't bring no charges. He was on his property. Mm -hmm. He did not invite him. And they said, well, I saw my witness say that. The guy came on the property, came after my father. Before I could hit him, I said, my father took him out. What are you going to do? You want to indict my father? Go ahead. See if a jury convicts him. The guy came on his property. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, the DA decided in his best bet, it would be because it'd be his best bet to let it go. But then we were going to say, you know what? Because the DA was an Irish guy. He said, well, you know what? You're prejudiced against Italians. And that's the first thing we were thrown right out. Yeah. Anyway, it went. Now, I see my father would come home maybe 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. And he'd you know, hang out in the house or whatever. And every now and then, he would go upstairs. I'd see him go down the cellar. And I hear some noise down there. Who knows what my father was doing? Comes up, goes upstairs, showers up, gets dressed, comes down with a suit on, goes back down to the cellar, comes back up, says, I'll be home late tonight. I said, okay, Pop. I said, who's picking you up? He goes, Mac is picking me up. I said, okay. 
hated him or my uncle Frank, which was his brother-in-law and his cousin. It was my uncle. Pick him up. They go out. And then my father come home maybe 11, 12 o'clock. I'm up because I'm doing what I'm doing. Comes in. Boop, goes back down the cellar, comes back up, goes upstairs, changes, showers up, in bed, and goes to bed. And to me, that was normal. My father was going to play cards or whatever it was. I didn't know what the hell he was doing. So one day, I'm on the piers on uh, on Pier 7 downtown, and I got to go to a meeting. There's Carmine Labardos is there. There's Tom DeBella's over there. Anthony Scotto's there. Uh, Joe Fish, this uh, 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 delegate. Uh, Jimmy Rotunda's there. I mean, uh, uh, Frankie Martin's there. Everybody's over there. So when me and Mac pull up and I'm over there, I hear, I see Joe Fish yelling at this guy. I said, wow, who the hell's Joe yelling? I mean, yelling and cursing at a guy. And he's pointing up on the ship. I said, well, who the hell's he yelling at? I look up, I see my father. Now nah, I went nuts. I went after I was going to kill him. I was going to choke him. No, 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 no time. He goes, leave it go, leave it go. I says, he knows that's my father. I said, I'll kill him. I'll snap his fucking neck. Leave it go. I'm fuming. Come on, let's go to the meeting. I'm walking in. I say, hey, listen. I said, I forgot my cigars in the car. I want to go back and get him. He goes, all right. I walk back. I tap Joe. I said, Joe. He says, yeah, what? I said, that's my father. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah. I just hit him right in the face. Bang. I just started going to work on him. I was beating him from one side. I said, you disrespect my, you know, that's my father. I kicked. Well, I didn't do to this guy that they all come running out of the room. Somebody called him out. They all come running out of the room. They all tackle me. And I said, what are you, crazy? What's I said, he disrespected my father. I said, I'll kill him. I said, and they said, don't you know? I said, don't I know what? This was Carmine Lombardoza tells me. So Tom DiBella comes over. Now, Tom DiBella was my father's godfather. He baptized my father. And Tom DeBell was a big captain in the family, and he used to be acting boss, like when the boss would go away, mm-hmm. they would make him acting boss at the time. So I says, no, what? So everybody says, don't you know? I said, what do I know? I'm not, I don't know. So they get me. They had a, first of all, an ambulance came to take Joe Fish away. They took him away in an ambulance. They all get me in the office, and they tell me, don't you know? I said, don't I know what? What am I supposed to know? So they all looked at each other, and they says, you really don't know. I said, what the fuck am I supposed to know? <laughs> they said, listen. Tonight you go home, you and your father got to have a long talk. He says, but if you and him have a talk, you got to make this right with this guy, Joe. He says, you put him in the hospital. He's our delegate. You put him in the freaking hospital. This guy might wind up dying. Okay. I go home. I got into my father's house that night, maybe about 6 o'clock. My father goes, come here. He goes, let's go in the yard. I want to talk to you. Yeah. He goes, he goes, let me ask you a question. He goes, do you know what I do? I said, Pop, as far as I know, you're working along, you're along me. He goes, let me explain something to you. He goes, how do you think we live so good? I said, what are you talking about? He goes, when you were growing up, anything you wanted, you had it, right? I said, yeah. He goes, your mother used to come and say, Frank, I seen this TV. He, I said, I go out and I buy a brand new cash well, right? I said, yeah. Your mother wanted this, that, or whatever you want. You got cash. I never had to say we're paying it off. We paid cash. I said, yeah, right. He goes, how do you think we live so good? I said, Pop, I said, you're making the money from the longshoreman. I said, well, he goes, you think that a longshoreman makes that type of money to live like we live? He goes, when I bought you your first car, when I bought it cash, he goes, you think a longshoreman gets that type of money? I said, what's the point? He goes, listen, he goes, you know, your Uncle Joe's a wise guy. Your Uncle Nino's a wise guy. Your Uncle Sal. I says, yeah. He goes, I'm not. He goes, I work for the commission. 
As we talk about you work for the commission, he goes, I work for the National Commission. I look at him, I says, Are you kidding me? Because I'm telling I work for the National Commission. He goes, it's number one. He goes, number two. He says, that thing with Joe Fish, that's an act. He goes, the FBI is always looking at me. He goes, so we make it that I'm a working guy and I take orders. He goes, that's an act. Because me and Joe Fish are good friends. He says, you got to make it right. He goes, this guy might die. I said, I know. I was already told. I said, so what do you do for the commission? He goes, well, let me put it this way. When there's a problem with one of the families and they need a specialist, they go to the commission and the commission gets me and I solve the problem. I get rid of it. Sully told me I knew what it was. He was a shooter, my father. Right. Sully told me I knew. Boom, right. I says, what? I says, you know, let me tell you something, Pop. No, for you know, I love it, but you got some pair of fucking balls. He goes, what? I says, you don't want me in this life. Meanwhile, you're over here doing work. He goes, I didn't want this for you. I said, well, I'm already in, so this is what I wanted to do. I said, but you should have told me. He goes, I didn't want you to know. He goes, I didn't want you to. I said, Pop, I'm never going to think bad about you. You're my father. What, are you kidding me? I said, but he goes, well, now you know. I said, okay, no problem. Next day, I go up to 86th Street, and a friend of mine had the, uh, had the, had the uh, Cadillac deal on 86th Street. I walk in, and Tommy goes to me. He goes, I heard what happened yesterday on the pier. I said, please, I don't want to get into it. He goes, I heard what happened. He goes, I take it you spoke to your father last night. I said, yeah. I said, so all you knew about my father except me? And he started laughing. He said, yeah. <laughs> I said, listen, I got to make it right with this guy. I said, from what I understand, he's in bad shape, but he's going to live. I said, I want to get him a car. He goes, Anthony, pick your choice. Whatever Cadillac you want, I'm going to give it to you for cost. I got a Cadillac for cost. Paid him out. Now I go to the hospital to see Joe Fish. I come in the room. This guy is laying. He's got a cast over here, a cast here, a thing around his head, around his ribs, his leg, and he's hooked up to machines. This guy seen me. He was trying to get out of the bed. He thought I was there. He was going to kill him. Hey, he thought you were there the to finish it. I says, Joe, listen, listen. I says, Joe, relax. I says, I did not know that you and my father were friends and this was an act. I only found this out last night. Otherwise, I would have never done that. I said, I want to apologize. I says, listen, I'm going to make this right with you. I said, so please heal up. And when you come out, I says, I want to make it right with you. About, it was about two months or so go by. I get a call. Joe's down on Pier 7. He's in Anthony Scotto's office. He was down there, Anthony Scotto. I go down, and I'm driving the Cadillac. My cousin Mac is driving my car. We're parking on the piers. I go into the office. He sees me, Joe Fish, and he starts sweating. I says, Joe, I say, ain't I doing? Good, good, good. I says, Joe, come out with me. I want to talk to you. He didn't want to get out of the office. Wouldn't leave the office. Anthony tells him, he goes, go with him. He didn't want. He goes, go with him. He says, "We're gonna drag you out." He's coming out, and he must have thought he was gonna get whacked. I'm walking. I got my arm around. I said, "Joe, look, I'm really sorry. I'm gonna make this right." I said, "Joe, God, do me a favor." He goes, "Why?" Well, I says, "Close your eyes." I thought he was gonna take a heart attack right there. The look that came over his face. I says, "Joe, just close your eyes." I said, "Seriously." I says, "Don't worry about nothing." This guy closed his eyes. Listen to me. He was shaking. Now I got the car right there. As soon as he opened his eyes, he'll see the car. I said, open your eyes. He wouldn't open his eyes. He probably figured he was going to be looking down the barrel of a gun. <laughs> I, said, I said, Joe, would you please open your eyes, Joe? I said, don't make me have to open your eyes. He opens his eyes. I go, that's for you, Joe, the car. 
he turned around, he looked, and I could see the color came back in his face. He says, I want to apologize. Like I said, I didn't know. If I would have known you were my father, this was your act, I would have never done this. But this is for you. It's all paid off. The insurance is paid up for two years. When the insurance is due, call me, and I'll pay the insurance for another two years. I gave him the keys, the registration. It's under your name, everything. It's my gift to you, and I want to apologize you. I'm very sorry about that. This guy, I think that night was the first good night's sleep he had because he knew I wasn't going to do nothing to him. <laughs> and I gave him the car, so I made it good with him. And when the insurance expired, the funny thing is, when the insurance expired, he didn't tell me. I knew because I had a thing. I said, Joe, I'm coming to see you. I said, look, I already paid the insurance. No, I said, Joe, I told you this is what I'm going to do for as long as you have the car. That's it. That's the least I can do. I mean, I did screw this guy up bad. I really, I really, I really hurt this guy something bad. Wow. So, and I know by far this is what he was doing. But my grandmother used to tell me stories. Now, my grandfather, Antonio Raimondi, Luciano Raimondi, he came from Sicily. Mm-hmm. He was a barber by trade in Sicily, but he was a big man in the black hand. He was one of the bosses. Now, my grandmother that he married, Nunziata, Nancy, here's how it goes. Uncle Lucky, which our real last name is Lucana, not Luciano. Mm-hmm. But for some reason over here, they changed it to Luciano. So everybody says, well, why don't you use the name Lucana instead of Luciano? I said, because if I say Salvatore Lucana, they're going to say, who the hell is that? Yeah, nobody's going to know you're talking about. Salvatore Luciano, they know it's Uncle Lucky. Now, he was my grandfather Antonio's blood cousin. Blood cousin. Now, his father, Antonio, which his father's name was Antonio also, that would be my great-grandfather, he had an affair with a woman. And he had four girls. There was Auntie Mary, my Aunt Cumberlina, Aunt Lucy, and my grandmother, Nancy. They were Lucky's half-sisters. My grandfather kidnapped my grandmother, she said. She always said that he kidnapped her, and he married her. That's Nancy. So now Uncle Lucky is not only my grandfather's cousin, but it's his brother-in-law now, because he's married to his half-sister. And there was an uncle that we had who was a cousin to my grandfather named Ralph Guido, who was in the Black Hand. And they used to call him El Terrible, the terrible one. He married my grandmother's sister, Lucy. He married her. So now not only they're cousins, but they're brother-in-laws. This is how it went in the family. So now along comes my father. My father's born. Lucky's his uncle. Uncle Ralph is his uncle. And is going so on and so forth. Now, Uncle Ralph had a sister named Rose. Rose had four children. She had Ruthie, Adeline, Jeanette, and Mac. Hugh McIntosh. Okay, she married an Irishman from, uh, I believe he was from Dublin. So now this is now uh, Uncle Lucky is also now my father's uncle because, you know, with the relationship and a cousin. And then Uncle Uncle Ralph is my father's uncle because he's married to his aunt. And it was also his cousin to my grandfather. And then he had a son named Frank. Now. My father married my mother, Mary. Her father was Frank Castiglia. They changed his name to Casa originally, but then they made it, but originally then they were called Costello. He was Frank Costello's cousin. Mm-hmm. 
And my father married his daughter, which was my mother Mary. This is my grandfather, Frank. Now, Frank Costello, the big uh, the boss, this is my other grandfather who was in the Black Hand. Mm-hmm. He, in turn, introduces my Uncle Frank to my mother's sister, my Aunt Palmer. And they get married. Now, Uncle Frank is my uncle because he's married to my aunt. But he's my cousin because he's my father's cousin. You see how uh, how the bloodline goes? Yeah. Now, Mac, you Macintosh, was my cousin through blood because his mother and Uncle Ralph were brother and sister. And they were my father's cousins also. So whether Mac was a third cousin, fourth cousin, tenth cousin, he was still blood. Mm-hmm. to me you follow yeah. there's still a blood relationship which a lot of people don't uh how can i put it? they don't either they don't like to hear it because of course my cousin mac literally he was a legend in organized crime he was combine persico's bodyguard and chauffeur and he was the top enforcer to the colombo family all right? all right and who was with him every day me a lot of people are jealous of it. Yes, they were. A lot of people want to badmouth me, and we don't know you from here, from there. You're all full of bull because most of these guys were kids. And the guys that are my age or a little younger that don't want to admit it because they're all jealous they couldn't be around my cousin Mac. I was with my cousin Mac seven days a week, 24 hours a day. We were at the diplomat on Cavill Street and 3rd Avenue. That's where we stood. So now Mac is my cousin also. And so when you were coming up, you were around guys like Meyer Lansky and everything else too, you know, Neil Delacroche, um, guys like that. Now, at the time when you're coming up, those names probably don't mean the same thing to you at that time as it does to people now. Now, when you say those names, that's like mafia royalty. But, you know, to you, they were just, you know, uncles and and friends and family friends, and you probably didn't know the extent of it. I mean, but that's looking back on it now. That was some heavyweights that you were around, man. All right, I'll explain everything with that. My grandfather, uh, Frank Casser, who we called his name was Casser. Originally, the original name is Castiglia, mm-hmm. but he used the name Casser because that's what they were given. But he used to use the name Costello. But then when they went to get Uncle Frank, they were come from my grandfather. Now that grandfather of mine, he was only five foot four. Uncle Frank Costello was like six two. So he went back to the name Casa. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, his cousins from the old country was Anil Della Croce. And it uh, was, uh, was uh, um, oh, Jesus, his other cousin there. Uh, gee, I'm drawing a blank. You believe this shit? <laughs> uh, there was Anil. And, oh, and, and Frank, uh, and uh, Frank, uh, oh, God. And uh, Frank Costello. They were his cousins going back to the old country, all right? Whether they were third, fourth cousins, whatever, there was a bloodline there with the three of them. Right. Now, my grandfather, Antonio Raimondi, Luciano Raimondi, Uncle Lucky was his cousin and his brother-in-law. And then Carmine Galenti, who used to be the head of the Bonanno family, was his kid cousin. And what it was, was this was how they were related. Now, I would call... Frank Costello and Anil, I would call them uncle. The reason why I would call them uncle, these guys are like 35, 40 years older than me. So as respect, I would call them uncle. I'm not going to say it's my cousin. I said, this is my uncle. So everybody says, oh, it's your uncle, it's your uncle. I said, no, it's my cousin. But as a sign of respect, I say it's my uncle. 
a lot of people, it doesn't, you know, the head, it doesn't penetrate the head. Now, Carmine Galenti was my grandfather's cousin. Now, Lucky was my uncle, because it's my grandmother's half-brother. So that was him, my uncle, uncle Lucky. Now, my middle name is Salvatore, because my uncle Sal, my godfather, got the name Salvatore after Uncle, after uncle Lucky, because his real name is Salvatore. Mm-hmm. So my grandmother named him after her brother. When I was born, they named me after my grandfather, but they gave me the middle name of Salvatore. After my Uncle Sal, who was my godfather, but also after Uncle Lucky. Okay. And that's how we were all related over there. Now, I used to see these guys coming to the house all the time. My grandfather, Frank, he had a house on Baltic Street in Brooklyn between 3rd and 4th Avenue. It was an eight-family walk-up. Eight families. And there was number family in the house. All his children lived in the house. My aunts, my uncles on my mother's side, and their families. There was no, no strangers in the building. But every weekend, I would see all these cars would come up on Baltic Street. Now, Baltic Street was a one-way-up block. They'd be double and triple parked. Cops never bothered them. Cops never bothered them. And these guys, I would see them come out with the suits, the big diamond rings, like I like to wear now, the jewelry, wads of cash. I go, wow, what the hell are they doing? So one day, I think it was, uh, my. I met Maya Lansky. I remember Maya Lansky was at the house. He would come. Carmine, uh, Carl, uh, Carlo Gambino would come down there. Uh, you had uh, Uncle Iggy Leone used to come down there. Tom Long, Tom DiBella. Yeah, Joe, uh, uh, Joe Bonanno used to come in when he was in town. They'd always come there. Because they were my grandfathers. And my other grandfather, Antonio, would come over. They'd have their meeting in the building, but they would go in the yard. My grandfather had a yard. It was a private yard. And he had an Italian garden there with the wine, the fig trees, the whole nine yards. And they used to like the way my mother cooked. And my mother would whip, start cooking for like 20 guys. It didn't bother them. My mother loved to cook. She'd get up 6 o'clock in the morning, my mother start cooking. You think she's cooking for five people. You think she's cooking for 20. <laughs> I mean, anybody who knew me knows my mother. They went my house, they'll tell you. When my mother cooked, you had food there for a week. For the one meal. And when holidays came, forget about it. She grilled that one cook and you, you, could, eat, you could eat until New Year's Day from Christmas Eve. <laughs> so that was just to come there. So one day, I bet it was either, I think it was Uncle Frank. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was Uncle Frank. I thought it was Uncle Arneal, but it was Uncle Frank. He pinched my cheek so hard that I was crying. All right? I mean, he really pinched it. I remember Maya Lansky grabbed me. He goes, come here. He goes, wipe your tears. He says, don't cry. I look at me like, he goes, listen to me. Next time he pinches your cheek, he goes, you look at him and you go like this. He goes, oh, fuck you. I said, he goes, you tell me just tell him, fuck you, just like that with the hand. My grandfathers were laughing. Later on that day, uh, I call, like I said, I call Uncle Frank out of respect. He grabs my cheek and pinches me. I pull in and fuck you. He goes, what you say? I said, fuck you. He starts laughing, takes out like $20, gives me $20. So Anil, Uncle Anil grabs me. And like I said, I call Anil Uncle out of respect because they were older. He goes to pitch and then fuck you too. He, every time I told one of them, fuck you, I'll go fuck yourself after getting $20. <laughs> I was cursing all day long. I didn't give a shit, but they were laughing. <laughs> this is what they taught me. Now, I was in the steps. Now, as I got older, I started realizing a lot of things. And they always used to ask me, what do you want to be? I used to say, I want to be like you guys. 
They said, you know, we are. I said, yeah. I said, what? Uh, I said, oh, wait, what? I says, I said something. I says, uh, I said, you're gangsters. He says, no, 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 I'm sorry, forgive me. No, my grandfather said, do you know what we are? I says, no, but I know he's got a lot of money. He goes, we're gangsters. I says, oh, you mean like James Cagney? He said, no, 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 no. He goes, let me explain something to you. We're gangsters. We do what we want. We answer for whatever we do. We have a problem. We take care of it ourselves. We don't have to run to anybody. I said, okay. I was about maybe 10, 11 at the time. That's okay. Now I'm starting to understand. So they kept telling me more and more. And like I said, Maya Lansky was always, every time Maya Lansky was in town, he came down. He always came to the house to see my family. He like he was very close with my father and my mother. And every time he used to come to the house, I remember he'd say, Mary, he says, can you do me a favor? My mother said, why? What do you want? He goes, I'm starving. Can you make me something? So my mother used to joke, she goes, the only time, she goes, that's the only reason why you come here, so that I can cook for you. He started laughing. We knew, because they, they loved the way my mother cooked. So Maya used to teach me how. Now, my uncle Lucky got deported. When yeah. he went uh, in 1946, whatever it was. Yeah, that was after he got out of prison, right? That was the kind of the deal that they cut. Once he got out, he had yeah. to get deported. Well, they let him out of prison on account of that. Now, right. when I, the story I got, when I was born, I was in a Swedish hospital my mother was. And my mother and father were very well liked by all everybody, especially my father. Meanwhile, I didn't know what my father was doing. He was doing this at a young age. Mm-hmm. They was taking guys out. And like I said, all his brothers were wise guys. The story I got was that Uncle Lucky came in to the United States when I was born because he wanted to be with my family when I was born because he was very close to my family. Everybody goes, oh, yeah, you're like, uh, what was that thing with the, the Lion King? They held you up. I said, yeah, I don't even want to hear that nonsense. Guys are stupid, but they're jealous. So I remember my Uncle Lucky coming in, and I remember my father, they made him a good offer if he would have went back to Italy, my father. And I went with him. It was me, my father, Frank Costello. Anil didn't come. Maya Lansky came in and uh, Tom DeBella. We went to Naples. Uh, we were going to see about moving the family back to Italy. That's when he took the heart attack in the airport, my uncle. Mm-hmm. Uncle Lucky took the heart attack. He didn't die in the airport. He died in the hospital. That's where he died. And what they done, they had a big funeral for him. And Uncle Bartello they had a silver coach drawn by horses, all silver, to take him to have him interred. But what happened, Uncle Frank, uh, Uncle Lucky, uh, Uncle Frank, rather, uh, uh, O'Neill and everybody, they wanted him in the United States to be buried. So what they done, they pulled a couple of strings here and there. Nobody in the family gave him an argument with it. Three days later, they took his body and they shipped him into St. John's. They had a mausoleum built for him in St. John's Cemetery. And that's where they put my Uncle Lucky. And he's with all his friends up there. With all his friends that he had, that they wanted him there. Now, he passed on. Maya would come in. And Maya used to take me to a lot of places with him. And I remember Maya taught me. He said, let me tell you something. He goes, you can rob more money with a briefcase than you can with a gun. He says, remember that. Mm-hmm. i never forget when he told me that. You can rob more money with a briefcase than you can with a gun. I said, that sounds good to me. <laughs> and he was teaching me the ropes, teaching me a lot of things. But what happened in the interim, I was getting in trouble because I didn't want to go to school. Mm-hmm. So I was in St. Augustine's Catholic School in Brooklyn on Sterling Place. And 
there were those kids around the Cicerillo family. There was Raymond Cicerillo, Anthony Cicerillo, which they called him Nini. There was the older brother Rocco and the youngest brother Stephen. And Raymond used to sit behind me in the St. Augustine school and he was sticking me with a pin, which I didn't know it was a pin. And I used to tell him, stop, stop. And I know say, Raymondi, back in the classroom, 40 pounds of books all day because I turned around to yell at the kid. So I come home one day and my mother sees that we had we wear white shirts in St. Augustine. She goes, what's on the back of your shirt? I said, I don't know. She goes, there's blood. I take the shirt off and on my T-shirt there's blood. So I said, I don't know, Ma. I don't know what it's from. Next day, same thing happens. Now my father calls me, he says, get over here. He says, I want to talk to you. He says, what's going on? I said, Pop, look, there's this kid. You know, this is rules. He says, yeah, this guy keeps sticking me in the fucking back with something. It's got to be a pin. Every time I turn around, I tell him to stop. Sister Ann Michelle gets me. She puts me in the back of the classroom. I got to stay there all during the day. And then the afternoon period holding these books, 40 pounds of freaking books. I was going to tell you what I'm going to do. He takes out a pen knife. It had about maybe a two and a half inch blade on it. He goes, take this. He goes, tomorrow, this kid sticks you with the pen, take this knife and stab him right in the fucking eye. I looked at my father and said, what? Stab him right in the fucking eye. I was in the seventh grade. He goes, don't worry about the cops. Don't worry about the school. Don't do what I'm telling you. He goes, I'm telling you, don't worry about nothing. I'll be the first one to get the call. Next day, I'm in school. He's sticking me in the in the back. I said, Raymond, stop. Raymond, stop. Raymond, stop. The nun goes to the army. I opened up the pen knife. He put his arm. I stabbed him right here in the arm. I ripped his whole arm open. From where you bend your arm right to the right. I ripped his blood shot all over the place. Well, Sister Ann Michelle took about 10 heart attacks when she seen that. <laughs> Cops were there. Everybody was there. They picked me up. And they take me to the Bergen Street Station. My father comes. My uncles, they walk in. Say a couple of words. And I walk out. My father says, don't worry about nothing. He goes, good. He goes, you didn't stab him in the eyes, but you ripped his arm open. He says, okay, that's good. He had to get like about 100 stitches in the arm, this kid. He said, I screwed him up. Now they were saying that they were going to press charges. So my cousin Mac and uh, was my cousin Mac, and there was, uh, I think it was, was Mac that came. I think little Vincent was there. Uh, what's his name? Uh, he passed away. Um, oh, Jesus. Uh, I forgot the guy's name. One of the other guys. Preacher was there. Bell, baby Jean. Baby Jean was there. A couple of them were there. They kicked in the door to the Cicerillo house while they were having dinner. They came walking in and they put the gun in the father's throat and down his mouth. They told him, you press charges. We're going to come back and kill your whole fucking family. End of story. My grandfather is the one who gave them the order. He says, kill the whole family. My grandfather was very, from the backhand, he didn't fuck around my grandfather. He said, they say no, kill everybody in the house. And they were ready to kill everybody in the house. They were ready to whack everybody in the house. Father, mother, kids, everybody. Make a long story short, Mr. Cirillo's, next day I get the call. They're not pressing charges. Okay. Two days later, I go back to school. I'll tell you one thing, though. When I went back in Sister Ann Michelle's class, I never stood in the back of the room no more holding any books. I can tell you that. <laughs> I could talk in the class any day while. She never bothered me after that. Yeah, Carl Blanche do whatever you wanted in there. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting into trouble more and more. And what happened? I got into trouble in John Jay High School. I threw a chair and a teacher. I threw it down this flight of stairs. My father had to come up and see Vincent and Ricky O, the dean, straighten it out. And what happened? 
my father and his brothers, my father and my godfather, my uncle Sal, and my uncle Frank, they got together, took me to his house on Dean Street, decide what they're going to do with me, and they bring my cousin Mac in. And when I seen him, I walked over to him. I remember, I loved my cousin Mac. I mean, they were close. And he was like 20, 28, 29 years older than me. I come in, hey, Mac, what's doing? He cracked me in the face. I looked at him. He pulled out a gun. I remember when he put the gun down in my face. He says, you think you got the balls to do this? You could take somebody's life, this one. Make a long story short, I turned around and told him, well, if I can't be like you guys, you might as well pull the trigger. With that, he puts the gun away and he smacks me in the face again. And he says, sit there. They were talking. They decided to put me with Mac, let Mac teach me the ropes. You know, being a wise guy, so to speak, and whatever. This way, if I go with another crew where I could get screwed up and they might put me out there to dry, hang me out to dry or whatever, at least I'm here with my own people. And everybody in the Colombo family knew my father. They all knew my father. I said, okay, so they put me with him, and he used to bring me down to the diplomat on Carroll and 3rd, Carroll Street and 3rd Avenue. And Joe Colombo was there. And everybody said, oh, why would Joe Colombo take an interest in you? I said, let me explain. When he brought me down there, Joe Colombo says, who's this kid? He said, this is Frankie's kid. He goes, top? He says, yeah, no problem. He goes, glad to meet you. Welcome to the club. Tom DeBella seen me. He goes, Frankie's kid? He says, yeah. He goes, I'm Tom DeBella. And I met the guy. I already knew Tom. But I said, all right. And I was over there. And they gave me little jobs to do in the club. You know, like a... I cleaned the bathroom, washed the floor, mopped the floor and everything. You know, for that, I said, fine, I'll do it. After about maybe two months, Joe Colombo says, come here. He goes, here's an envelope. He gives me an envelope in a bag. He goes, bring it up to Fifth Avenue at the Scappy's Club. That's Anthony Scott Patchy. Scappy was a big captain in the family. He goes, bring it up to him. Wait, and then whatever he gives you, bring it down here. I walked up to Fifth Avenue, got, got gave it to Scappy. Got back, went back down, gave it back to him. This went on for a while. Then Joe Colombo says, I'm going to make you going to do some errands for me. That's okay. I said, what am I going to do? He goes, you're going to go to Carroll Street and Fifth Avenue. From Carroll and Fifth, you go to Fifth Street and Fifth Avenue, then to Seventh Street and Fifth Avenue, back to Fifth Street and Fifth Avenue, back to Carroll and Fifth and down here, and bring everything down to me, the money, the receipts, and I bring it down here to the other bank. This is going on for quite a while. It's going good. And what happened? I get arrested. One day I'm, I'm walking with all the stuff. Two detectives grab me. How old are you here? Huh? How old are you at this point? 14. 14. Okay. I'm 14. I had the number slips, the horse slips, the policy slips, the, the everything. And I had all the cash. So they bring me down to the Bergen Street Station house. And they throw me in the cell with full-grown men, guys that have been like their 30s, 29, 30, 40 years old. They weren't supposed to because I was a minor. Right. You got to remember. Okay? They should have had you either in a cell by yourself or isolated from everybody else. Right. So they did that because they thought that maybe they would get me to talk. So I'm in there, and I'm looking at all the guys, and I'm leaning up against the wall. I see two guys, and they look at me, and I looked at them, and I recognize them from the neighborhood. And they recognized me, and the two of them looked at me, and they gave me the nod, and I gave them a nod back, which they just, you know, we know where you are. Don't worry about nothing. We're here. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Now they're looking for me because I never returned to the bank. I never went back to Cowell Street. never went back to Fifth Avenue and Cowell Street. 
and they're saying, what happened to Anthony? Something happened to him, this, that, or whatever. And one of the cousins to the Persico says, ah, oh, maybe he took off with the money, took off with the money. This guy never liked me, and I never liked him. But he's dead now, so fuck him. I ain't even going to mention his name. <laughs> so my cousin Mac turned around and said, my cousin would never do that. He goes, I don't want to hear that shit. Joe Colombo got the lawyer. The lawyer's looking around. He says, they got him in Bergen Street Station. Okay, he's locked up in Bergen Street. I heard, I was there a couple hours. I heard a guy yelling. And I'm saying, wow, I know that voice. And it was Joe Colombo. He was yelling like you never heard in your life. Telling them, you guys remember the breadline? I'll put you on the fucking breadline. Who arrested my guy? The fucking, uh, the guy he's got, what is, is he the inspector or the sergeant or not the inspector or the, uh, whatever he is, you know, when they got the three, four stars the cap- on the shoulder. Captains or whatever, captains. No, he was higher than the captain. This guy was like the uh, lieutenant, the inspector or the chief. No, higher than the chief. Lieutenant? Uh, higher than lieutenant. Oh, all right. Lieutenant is underneath the captain. Okay. Anyway, this guy comes out. I go, Joe, what's the matter? Joe says, who arrested my guy? And so on and so on. Go, bring him out here now. Because I want those guys. Because that's my guy. You don't fucking touch him. So they bring him out. They bring me out. And the two detectives come out. Joe reamed them a new ass. Let me tell you something. With that, he says, and where's all the policy slips and the bag and everything? So the detectives got it. And they went to give it to Joe. He goes, no, he goes, you hand it to him. We didn't have to hand it to me. The detectives are looking at it. He said, you heard what I said? Hand it to him. Like that, he said. They and it ain't it ain't their insides out that they had to hand it to a kid. You understand? Yeah. <laughs> 14 years old. With that, Joe goes, come on, let's go. He goes, remember, this is my guy. He don't get touched. No problem. Get in the car, go back to Cow Street, and we're talking. And then we get back into the dip. And he goes, he goes, you know, he goes, you know, thank you would be nice. Like, I remember when he said, I could thank you or something. And he said, this kid don't talk. He says, why didn't he talk? I says, listen. And he says to me, I, excuse me, I says, he goes, I come to get him out. He doesn't say a word. Well, here he doesn't say a word. He goes, talk. Why, why, why don't you talk? Why? I says, you always told me. Never open up my mouth. Keep my mouth shut. So that's what I did. They started laughing. Joe started laughing. He said, all right. And he says, you got to finish the route. So Scappy comes. He goes, I'll take him. So Scappy took me. Scappy was a captain at that time. You know how far back we're going. I'm only 14. And he was already becoming a captain. He took me and I finished the route. And then that's how I started progressing more and more with him. Wow. So and now then he gave me. The- oh, I was going to say at 16, you start hanging out at a place called the cadaver club, right? Right. And that's where you have a run in with somebody where you get pistol whipped. Yeah. Joe gave me a spot. Out in Bay Ridge, the cadaver club. He says, you go here. He goes, they, he goes the runners are going to bring you everything. They're going to bring you the receipts, the bets, the money, and everything. You get it. You bring it down third, down to 3rd Avenue or down below, as we used to say. He goes, then you're done for the night. I said, okay. They used to get it and bring it to me, and I'd be there in the afternoon. And Then when I got done bringing it down there, I would go back out to Bay Ridge and party for the night. Yeah, I'll go out to the club. I mean, I'm 16 years old. And I'm getting to all these clubs that you got to be 21 to get into because everybody knew me. Yeah. So I'm in the club one particular day. And a guy comes walking in. And he says, uh, who's taking the action here? I says, I am. Can I help you? He says, yeah. That's what I do for you. And that's why I got the scar 
The first time he hit me with the gun was right here. I still got the scar. That's never going to go away. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah. But right there. That was the first scar. He pistol whips me. Literally, I crawled out of the place, and I remember him cursing and yelling and screaming, telling me that if I come back, he's going to kill me. He's going to blow my head off. My mother's going to have to have a closed coffin, and on and on and on. I got in the car. I had an electric 225 Limited. I have no driver's license, but I knew how to drive, but they taught me how to drive. <laughs> so I drive from 86th Street and 3rd Avenue all the way downtown to Cavill Street and 3rd. I go to make a U-turn, and I crash the car into the wall of the diplomat on 3rd Avenue in Cavill Street. Now the guys come running out. They see I'm full of blood. They thought somebody shot me. They're looking for bullet holes. No, what happened? I, told, I, I couldn't even talk. I was so screwed up. They took me to Methodist Hospital with Dr. Leo, who was the doctor up there. He took care of me. They had me there a couple of days. He told me, he says, what happened? So I told him what happened. My cousin said, don't worry about it. Just relax. Couple, I was in the hospital about, well, maybe five, six, seven days, somewhere around there. I don't even remember how many freaking days. He gets me out of the hospital. I come home. He says, rest up a couple of days. That's okay. About three days or so go by. He goes, calls me up. He said, come Coming to pick you up, he said, everybody wants to see us. Okay, picks me up. Then we go down to Monty's Restaurant, which is down the block from the Diplomat. It's on Carroll Street between 3rd and Evans Avenue. So I walk in. How you feeling? Good, blah, blah, blah. Talking to everybody. Okay. Joe says, listen to me. He goes, I'm going to take care of this thing with Sally Burns. Now, I says, all right. He says, now, don't worry about nothing. That's okay, Joe. I said, I appreciate it. Now, this guy was 29 years old. Now, let me explain something. The guy that I shot, which I keep saying and telling everybody, was a cousin to Sally Granello, who was also called Sally Burns. Mm -hmm. That guy got killed in 1970. I heard by his own people. They left him in a car or in a trunk. Everybody keeps saying that I said I killed him. No, it was his cousin with the same name. Everybody says, oh, no, he wouldn't have the same name, Salvatore Granello. Yes, he will. Because Italian families, like in my family, you got four Anthony's. You got like three Franks, five Joey's, nine Sal's. That's the way Italian families are. Peter but Ball. even <laughs> Italians to this day, Americanized Italians, as I got to call them, they say, oh, no, that's not possible. That's a lot of nonsense. They don't even know the hell in heritage. So when Joe, t- so that's all I want to explain who it was. And in my book, I even explain who the guy was, that he was his cousin. In all the interviews I've ever done, I explained it was his cousin. But you know what? People want to change my words around to make themselves look better and to try to make me look bad. Mm-hmm. You know, that's ridiculous. It really is. Anyway, getting back to the story, my cousin Matt calls me over. And I'm sitting down. There was me, him. There was Big Alley Boy. It was Carmine, his brother. Baby Gene was alive still. Little Vincent, Scappy, they were all there. And he says, listen, let me tell you something. He says, Joe Colombo's going to handle this for you. He goes, he handles it for you. That means you belong to him. Period, you belong to him. Which means you can't do anything unless he gives the okay. And if he don't want you to be made, you never get made. No matter what. He says, but if you handle this yourself, you handle it. That means you belong here with us. And then when it's your time, You'll get straightened out. You'll be made. I says, okay. I go see Joe. I said, Joe, can I speak to you a second? He says, yeah, what? 
I said, Joe, I appreciate everything you're doing for me. I said, but I feel that being you gave me the spot, I should take care of this myself. I'll handle it. So Joe Colombo looks at me and he said, you're going to handle it? I said, yes, I'll handle it. Gets up. He hugs me. He kisses me. He says, I give you. He goes, do whatever you want to do. He goes, I'm giving you the okay. Whatever you have to do to settle this that you feel you can do, he says, I give you the okay to do it. I said, okay. I told them. There was a bar on Union Street and 3rd Avenue, Union Street Bar. And uh, Sally D and Joey D had it. My friend Sally and Joey D, they were young kids and their fathers were Sally and Joey D. They were gun runners. They had a lot of businesses, but they were gun runners. They were arms dealers, uh, Shylock and everything. I went to see Joey D. And I said, Joey, listen. I said, oh, the, he says, I heard about what happened with you and Bay Ridge. I said, yeah, everybody knows about it already. So he said, well, what do you need, cuz? I said, listen, I want to get a gun. He goes, come on. He goes, I got him in the sub-basement. You're on the ground floor in the bar. You go into the basement. Then there was another door that you went. It was a sub-basement. And if you were a gun nut, you'd be in heaven. You named the gun, the size, the shape, the amount. He's had guns, rifles, hand grenades, whatever you want. I picked out a Beretta. It was a 380 Beretta. I'll never forget it. Model 84, a Petro 380 Beretta from Italy. 13-shot clip and one in the pipe made 14 shots. Mm-hmm. He had a firing range down there. I test fired it. I must have shot, fuck, I don't know, 100 fucking rounds that day with him. <laughs> I kept hitting the bullseye. I was a natural. I missed the bullseye a couple of times, but I just nicked it. But a lot of shots I kept getting into the bullseye. Anyway, I said, This is the gun I want. I said, You know, how much is it? One of his uncles is there. I think it was, uh, I think it was Joey, the uncle, was there at the time. He said, it's a gift. So my uncle said, it's a gift. My father said, it's a gift. Gave me the gun with a box of bullets, put it in the bag. I went from Union Street over to Cow Street. He went from Union to President to Cow Street. My cousin Matt goes, you ready to go home? I says, yeah. Get in the car. Because we got in the bag. I the bag up. I pull out the gun. He hits me. What the fuck are you doing? He hits me and he goes, drop it. He says, you ain't got no license carry. I go, what are you doing with a gun anyway? I says, Friday night, I'm going to go back down to the Cadaver Club. And I'm going to straighten this out with this Sally Burns. I said, if I'm taking the gun, maybe I can scare him with it if I have to. So my cousin looks at me and he goes, you're going to scare him with that? I says, yeah. My cousin Max starts laughing. I said, okay, you're going to scare him. He goes, yeah, you keep thinking that. I said, right. don't worry about it. He goes, you're going to scare him. He must have knew. He must have knew something was going to happen. I get dressed everything Friday night, go down to the diplomat. See everybody, I left the gun in the car. Anyway, doing, we're talking, blah, blah, blah. Had something to drink. I said, I'm going out to the ridge now. I said, he goes, you going to see this guy? I said, yeah, I'm going to see this guy. He goes, all right, good luck. I get in the car. I drive, and I park right in front of the cadaver club. There was a spot. I get the gun. I stick it in my waistband. I have a suit on. I come out, and I see Dookie, the bartender. He goes, Andy, what are you doing here? I said, I want to see this kid, Sally Burns, I'm going to straighten out with him. He goes, he's crazy. He said, this guy's going to kill you if you come in there. He's been terrorizing the place, robbing the money, ripping off people. He says, don't worry about it. I'm going to straighten it out with him. Now, when you walked in to the, to the cadaver club, the bar was on the left, and to the right was a walkway about 40 feet. And there was a little ledge where people would put their drinks on, and you had the bar. Then it turned to the left like an L, 
and then it made another turn. So when it made that first turn as the L, there was tables and chairs, and there was a dance floor to the right, and then all tables and chairs. I turned the corner, and when I turned the corner, I don't know what, when I, it was true to me, it was when I was turning the corner, I took the gun out of my waistband, I had it in my right hand at my side. I turn around, I see, I see Sally Burns with his back to me, talking to this girl, Karen Schoolza. Paul Blanche came from my neighborhood. She seen me. She bent down and the music went down that the record was changing or whatever. And I heard her say, Anthony's behind you. This guy jumped up, yelling, screaming, and cursing. He was going to kill me. I'm going to make sure your mother has a closed coffin. I'm going to blow your fucking head off. On and on. He opens up his jacket. I see the gun in his waistband. He goes like this to grab the gun. I just picked up my hand and started firing. Whether it was a reflex, I don't know. Whether it was that I wanted to kill him, I don't know. Was it out of fear? Possibly. I don't know. Emptied the whole gun into him. Turned around, walked out, got the gun, burned myself with the barrels hot when I put it back in my waistband. Got in the car and I drove. Go back down to Cow Street. And I remember, I'm almost there, and I remember my cousin saying, you use a gun, get rid of it. I go back under, under, underneath uh, the Gowanus Parkway to the Gowanus Canal on Hamilton Avenue. Park the car, walk across. I'm looking over the canal. I took the gun apart. It was an automatic. This man threw it in the canal. Get back in the car, drive back to Cal Street, walk into the diplomat, and I see Joe Blub, the bartender. I said, where's everybody? He goes, down to Monty's. I walk into Monty's. Everybody looks, hey, what are you doing? Okay, blah, 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 whatever. He says, well, what are you doing here? I thought you went to straighten this out with the Sally Burns. I says, yeah, I did. So my cousin goes, well, what happened? That's so why I went there. I told him what happened with the yelling and the screaming. He goes, Adam, what happened? I said, I shot him. He says, you shot him? I said, yeah. He says, what do you mean you shot him? I said, I emptied the whole gun into him. because I got rid of the gun. I threw it over the canal. They told little Vincent, he says, go down to this club. Go see what happened over there. They said, did you kill him? I says, I think so. I don't know. I didn't stick around. Little Vincent was went from there all the way to Bay Ridge and back in a little less than an hour. Comes in, he said, they said, what happened? They said, is he dead? Vincent tells me he's dead. He goes, the guy has no head. They said, what? He goes, he blew his head completely off. Everything he shot him in the head. He said, the body's on the floor. If you without you could if you if you didn't know, if you didn't see no head, you wouldn't know if it was a guy or a girl in the suit. Because he has no head. His head is blown apart. The smithereens. It's in pieces. So I'm sitting there. And Joe Colombo turns around, tells the bartender, says, give him a seven and seven. I'm drinking seven and seven. Because you want something? Yeah, I want something. And he's sitting there. And he's going, look at this kid. He goes, he just killed the guy. So he says, he goes, look at him. He's not even fucking sweating. He's calm. Now, why was I calm? Could have been stupidity. Maybe it didn't really register in my head what I did. All right. Maybe it. Uh, maybe I didn't really realize it, whatever it was. But it really didn't hit me until about maybe two days later. Yeah, it probably just didn't register. Hit, yeah. And the way it hit me was, you killed him. Okay, I killed him. Well, better him than me. That's the way I looked at it when I finally registered. But Joe Colombo was impressed with that. And yeah, well, my cousin Max said, told him he's one of us. And then they sent me up to his house up in Saugerties. 
I was up there for a while, <clears throat> came back, and uh, that was it. And I didn't get pinched for that hit until uh, it was January 1970 when I got arrested for that piece of work. Wow. Now, tell us a little bit about that, because that's interesting, because back in those days, there was a certain law that kind of helped you out a little bit with that. Oh, yeah. And then they tried to get a workaround against you to still put you in the jail for that. Tell us a little bit about that. Cause that's pretty interesting. That part of the story. Yeah. I got picked up in, it was January, 1970. Two detectives got me and they said it was for the murder of Salvatore Granello, AKA Sally Burns. They came to the diplomat. They handcuffed me. They took me out. My cousin looked at me, gave me the nod. So I knew they were going to get the lawyer. And Abraham Gritz was my lawyer. And I made bail. And Abraham Gritz says I could work something out. Now, Abraham Gritz was a bail bondsman and a lawyer. This guy had dirt on everybody. I mean, you named the politician, he had dirt on them. You named the judge, he had dirt. You named the DA, he had dirt. He worked out a deal with the DA because, now here's the thing, because, now, I got a deal worked out that I would get a year and a half in prison. Then I come out, and I was being charged for discharging an unlicensed firearm in the city limits and possession of an unlicensed, registered, of an unregistered, unlicensed gun. The reason why I got that, because the city, the state, and the federal government had a law called the Youthful Offenders Act, which meant this. Up to 24 years old, you commit a crime, okay? The most they can give you is seven years. Mm -hmm. You kill a man. The most they could have given you is seven years under the Youthful Offender Act. Now, after 24, you're no more youthful offender. You're an adult. Yeah. You get tried the regular way. That's how I got out with a year and a half. So now what happens is that I says, I'll take the deal. My cousin Mac was going away. Carmine was going away. I said, I'll be out in a year and a half. Jerry Lang was home. So I said, I can get back in and start doing the rackets and everything again when I get home. Okay, fine. So we all paddle in the car one morning, and I'm going down to the courthouses to take the plea. I have to start my sentence. It was me. You were in Jerry Lang's Lincoln. Me, Jerry Lang, my cousin Mac, Joe Colombo. He was still alive at the time. Scappy came. Excuse me, little Vincent. Baby Jean was still alive. And we jumped in the car and we went. We went along 3rd Avenue to Atlantic Avenue. Turned, made a left-hand turn on Atlantic Avenue. Went down to Bourne Place. As soon as we made the right-hand turn on the Bourne Place, four cars came in on us like that from four different sides. Trapped us in the middle. Guys come running out. You sort of had their badges, FBI and everything. They had all their badges and everything hanging off these guys. And uh, I hear one of them. One of them the guy who grabbed me says, we got him. We got him. They got me. They says, you're under arrest for the civil rights violation of Salvatore Granello. I looked at him. Civil rights violation. I said, he's white. He's not black. See, years ago, I thought civil rights violation was a white man against a black man, black man against a white or a Spanish guy. No. The federal government has a civil rights violation where 
you cause the man's death. So by causing his death, number one, he can't grow old. Number two, he cannot be with his wife. He cannot see his children grow up. He can't earn a living. He can't support his family. He can't be his children's wedding. He can't see his grandchildren, on and on and on. It carries a mandatory sentence of 99 years. Oh. Period. That's it. They So they got William Kunstler came in on this, on this case. They had to get him in. And we were talking, and he says, you're going to get convicted. He goes, I'm telling you now. He says, so, but he goes, I got a rabbit to pull out of the hat. Okay. I said, then why don't I just take a plea? He says, because if you take a plea, you're not going to be able to pull it back. You're going to do the time. You get convicted. We got a rabbit. We can do it. We can get you out. It's okay. I went to trial in front of Judge Weinstock. Got convicted. Jury was in and out, and I think in less than an hour. Convicted me. Weinstock had me shipped out that night. There was a bus leaving that night for Atlanta. He threw me on. Normally, you would wait a couple of days. They threw me on it right away. Because here I am, 16 years old. And I'm around all these wise guys in my family. And everything. They figured they would get me to talk. Now, ship me right out. Okay, get to Atlanta. I remember Consul told me, and Abraham Grid says, we'll see you in a day or two. Day or two, they came there. And they says, listen, they said, there's this thing called the Southeast Asian Conference. If you go and you survive, you're out. Your records are wiped out. There's no record of you in the service. It's wiped out because you're a felon. We're using felons to do work because at that time, a lot of people were either running to Canada or they were uh, hurting themselves that they couldn't go in. They were dodging the draft. Right. Who was acting that they were gay? They would put peanut butter in their crotch and stick their fingers down there like they were, you know? And they needed guys. And they were taking convicted felons. And it's a thing you can look it up from years ago. So it was like they, they came, they saw me about a day and a half later. Next day, the MPs came and took me, and they took me down to Paris Island and Camp Lejeune. Wow. I signed up for the Marine Corps. But what happened was this. I signed up for the Marine Corps. Originally, I was supposed to go to the Army. But what happened was this. The Army would not take us to train us because we were felons. The Navy refused to take us because we were felons. The Air Force, the Airborne Rangers refused to take us. So the one who was stuck with us was the Marine Corps. They had to train us. They gave us Marine Corps dog tags because they had to give us dog tags. But they trained us. And then once we went to go in-country... They split us up. They put who put in the army, who put you here, who put you there. I was trained as a sniper. I got the training from everything I did with Captain Bass when he taught me. And that's how I wound up in the army. I was in the 3-7. 3-7 in the army was infantry. But being I was trained as a sniper, they made me a sniper. Now, I tell everybody I made marksman, sniper, and sharpshooter in one day, which I meant to tell them this. I trained for four months on all three. I got tested that day for all three, and I passed all three. That's how I got all three. Not that I, I learned in one day, because people say, oh, you said you learned in one day, and then you got, no, no, no. I trained for four months in basic, and they trained me for this, because like I said, we get the story about Captain Bass in the other show. You'll know why. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I got tested after four months, all three of those tests in one day, 
and I passed. Wow. Right? And I passed, and that's how I got it. Now, Camp Lejeune, that's where that's North Carolina? Yeah. Yeah. So you were down here next to my way because I'm in South Carolina right now. Right. Yeah, I had a lot and of Paris my- Island's right yeah. over there. Yeah, Paris Island's right yeah. over there too. Yeah. So how long were you in there for? Where? In the Marines. Once I got done with the basic training and they shipped us to Nam, I was out. I went with the Army. Okay, they so you right did get shipped army. over See? to Nam. Right. See, all the Marines were doing to us was training us to kill. Right. Period. But see, you had, had like the enlisted men and the men who were drafted, we did not associate with them. Right. Y'all we were, were separate. We were in a separate part of the camp. We got trained separately and everything. Now, if everybody survived, whoever survived that, when you came home, there's no record, no nothing, your records are wiped out. Now, my records, I am the only one who can get the copy of my records, according to what the government says. Now, do they still have a copy? Who the hell knows? All right? But nobody else can get mine because there's a lot of people who try to get copies of records of their relatives and they can't. Right. It has to be like my spouse or something like that. Fine. Now, I never consider myself better than anybody else. I tell this to everybody. I don't get any... I do not use the VA hospital. I don't get no benefits. I get nothing. My reward was you survived. We made you a better killer than what you was. All right. And it's truthfully, that's what they've done. You're home. You got no record. You served your country. We want nothing to do with you no more. You're like, uh, what's that? What's that? You're like the I, you know, like the impossible mission impossible. Yeah. The records are gone. We don't want them to know that you're there. But yet later on in years, there were articles that came out that the CIA and the FBI were putting felons in countries, training them to do kill to do kill missions for them. All I was taught to do was to do two things: one, survive, and two, to kill. That's it. They didn't. They didn't want no information on it. Go there, kill, and survive. That's it. You survive. You're free and clear. Everything's wiped out. Everything's expunged. You don't, oh, well, too bad, you died. Well, they probably didn't expect very many of you to come back at all, to be honest. A lot of a lot of us did come back. A lot of guys didn't, but a lot of guys did come back. Really? They did come back with a lot of guys. So you right, come... We were trained. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. We were trained just to kill. There was no in-between over here. No prisoners. Kill them. You walk into a village, we tell you, wipe them out, you wipe them out. When we walked in first, then the enlisted men and the draftees would come in after us. We were the first ones in, the last ones out. Right. So you come back, you're straight back on the street at this point? When I came back home, yeah, I was back on the street. Okay. Now, at this point, you're not a made guy, correct? No. No, okay. not yet, no. All right. So, because at this point you've already, you know, you've made your bones, so to speak, you killed Sally Burns. At what point did you become an actual made member? That happened in, uh, excuse me. That was uh good Friday, 1979. Okay. Now, can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, I know some people like to keep that to the vest, but well, about what, ha what happened, what happened, I'm not going to say exactly what happened, you know, with the thing, but what it was, was after Lufthansa and everything went off good, 
All right, big alley boy person go turned around and says, it's your time, I'm going to have you straightened out. Now, what happened at that time, the Colombo family, uh, one of the cousins in the Colombo family made about like 10, 12 guys that year. And the commission turned around and says, hey, you can't make no more guys for at least two years. This is good way you're getting a monopoly on everything over here. So Alley Boy wanted me made. So what he'd done, he went down, he took me, and we went down to Little Italy, and we saw uh, Carmine Galenti. Now, Carmine Galenti was my grandfather's cousin. He says, and he and Carmine Galenti was the head of the Bonanno family at the time. Correct. Major heroin we dealer, talking. too, by the way. Really major heroin. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll get into his story later on, too, but I'll, I'll tell you everything about that. And... Alley Boy told me, he says, I want to get Anthony straightened out. He goes, so you straighten him out here, and then you can ship him to us, which that was a common practice. Guys would get made with another family, and you would ship them to another family because that's the family that wanted them. Right. But for some reason, they couldn't make guys that year. So he says, I got to speak to his grandfather. So next day, I called up my grandfather, me, Carmine Galenti, and Big Alley Boy Persico. We went to see my grandfather. My grandfather tells me to step out of the room. I walk out. They're talking. A couple of minutes go by. He says, come in. He says, do you want to be a friend over here? I says, yes, more than anything. He goes, you know what it entails? I says, yes, I do. He goes, you know this? All right. My grandfather says, I give you my blessing. He tells Carmine, you have my blessing and my thing. You can straighten out my, my grandson. Make him a friend. That's Okay. Now, they never told me when they were going to make me a friend. They never gave me a day or whatever. So what happened? A couple of months went by, and my cousin calls me up. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm nothing. What are you going to say? I'm going to lock in tonight. He goes, get dressed. He says, we're going to go out. He goes, we're going to go down to Casa Bellas, have dinner. He goes, I got a couple of broads down there. I'm not that tired. It's okay. I shower up, change, put a suit on, picks me up. We go down to Casa Bellas. Walk in and see a couple of guys there that I know. Hey, how you doing? Anything good? Good, good. I said, where are these broads? He goes, they're upstairs. He goes, come on, let's go upstairs. <laughs> upstairs, they had a private room. I go upstairs, and they had a petition. So I meet him. I open the door, and I walk in, and the lights are on. As soon as I walked in, I looked around. I see, like, the tables like this with everybody sitting there. And now I'm saying to myself, now it's either one or two things. Either I'm in a world of fucking trouble because you had the boss, you had the captains and everybody. I didn't think I was going to get into that. I says, either that or I'm getting straightened out, I said to myself. So it's either I'm in trouble or I'm getting straightened out. Big alley boy Persico was there. My cousin Mac, they let him stay in the room. He wasn't supposed to. Mm -hmm. But my cousin Mac had all the power of a captain and he was never made. But he was half Irish and half Italian. That's how well respected he was. So Carmine Galenti comes up to me. He says, you know why you're here? I said, no. Don't You never tell me no way. No. He goes, right. he goes, do you want to, they asked me if I wanted to be a friend and on and on and on. I gave them my answers. We had the ceremony. And that's how I got made. And they had a party for me that night. And then they shipped me over to the Columbos. And that was a common practice. They would make a guy with another family because whatever the reason the other family wasn't making anybody then, and they would ship you over to that family. That mm -hmm. was a common practice that, that was used plenty of times. Now, when you guys shipped over to Columbo's, I mean, they had a lot of wars, 
you know, throughout the years there, was this in the middle of like one of their wars going on or was it was a piece of that time? It was a, it was a little problem in 79. There was a little bit of a problem, but not the major. Okay. Not the major. Now, one thing I want to clear up, because I, I want to tell you, man, you're probably the most lightning rod guy for people to try to pick apart everything that you say. And like you said, you've done oh, yeah, a great job this episode of making things clear because people can pick one thing you say and try to twist it. I've seen articles yeah. where it said, you know, Romani said he killed the Pope. You never said that you killed the Pope. You want to clear that did. story up real quick and kind of give us the, the cliff notes on there, because I think it's important to, to make sure that our audience knows the things that you say are sometimes taken out of context and twisted to make it look like you said you done a certain thing that you did not say. A lot of things are taken out of context and twisted. Mm-hmm. I can't get into the thing with the Pope too much because like I said, I'm under contract. With right. Trump, but basically what it came down to was this. I was involved in the stock scam when I came home. Right. My cousin was Jacob Marcinkus, Luigi Raimondi, Antonio Papalano, and all them. They were cardinals out in the, in, uh, in the Vatican. And they had a stock scam going. They were counterfeiting the stocks and selling them all over. And I, they came to me. They came to the United States. And I spoke with them. And then they were sending me the stocks. I had friends of mine that were in the stock market. And we were pushing the stocks through there. And then this one, I'll get into that later on. This guy, Pete Martell, who we were doing business with, became a rat. And we all took off and everything. But after all that was cleared, Pope Paul VI died. And he knew about the stock swindle. Right. <clears throat> now, Pope John Paul I came in. And it was supposed to take care of us. Basically, he stabbed us in the back. And he was going to defrock everybody and excommunicate everybody, which meant then now everybody's going to fall under Italian law and United States law. They flew in. They told my grandfather what was going on. I can't get into it too much because once I get done with the contract, then I can really get into it. And my grandfather says he's got to go. So then they told me, you got to come with us. Why do I got to come with you? Two reasons. First reason. Well, three reasons. One, you made a lot of money with us, which we made millions upon. Forget about the money we made with the stocks. Okay, that's one. There's two. You now here's the guy here. They're thinking now. Now these are cardinals. These guys understand me. Yeah. You are going to be our witness to God. With me, I'm going to be your witness to God. You're going to be our witness to God. When we die, God's going to say you killed one of my popes, and we're going to turn around and tell God we did it in a humanely way. He didn't feel no pain or anything, and we have a witness, our cousin Anthony, and you're going to tell God exactly what happened. And I says to myself, and I'm cra- and they're saying, I'm crazy after what these guys just said to me. <laughs> and we want you to tell us a good way that to put him out that he doesn't suffer. I said, why, why me? He says, well, you were trained in the military. You know how to take somebody out quietly. So I looked at my grandfather, and my grandfather says, you got to go. Now, it was my grandfather. I loved him dearly. My grandfather was one of the bosses in the Black Hand, but when my grandfather told you something, you did it. My grandfather was a stickler for the rules. 
-hmm. If I didn't comply with the rules, I don't know if he would have had me killed, but definitely I would have wound up at least in the hospital. That's how strict, and I'm his grandson. That's how strict he was. He was a stickler for the old rules. He did not like this New York bullshit. Not at all. The United States bullshit. He was an old timer. I went there. I told him what to do with the Valium. I told him to get the potassium cyanide and what to do with it. They did it, and the Pope went peacefully. And that was it. Wow. And so now the this scandal or the now, stock one thing, scandal. One thing I want to explain. What people don't realize, in Vatican City, you commit a crime in Vatican City, it stays there. Because right. Vatican City is considered a country within a country. There is no extradition. They have their own laws. So if you say, argument's sake, you're in the United States and you kill somebody and you go to Vatican City and they give you asylum, they can never take you out of that country. Wow. They can never take you out of Vatican City. They never get you out of there. There is no extradition, no nothing, nothing at all. Now the stocks thing that was going on, I'm, I'm assuming that kind of continued after that since they took care of business. Well, no, that, uh, well, yeah, well, no, that ended because like I told you, Pete Martell became a rat. Okay. All right. was, I'll get into that later on. He became a rat. So everything, you know, everything stopped after that. But I will tell you this, the stocks that are around, they're still around to this day. They're not worth the paper they're written on. Wow. Yeah, that's how good of the forgeries they were. So you're now, after you're made, you're into what? Pretty much everything. Bookmaking, Shylarkin, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, after our club, sports betting, yeah. Okay, so there's an interesting story that I want to get to because we're like an hour and 20 in. And like I said, we're going to have a couple shows with you because you've got a lot mm-hmm. of story. But one of them that I want to get to you're going into a club to shake it down, right? And you run into a guy. Oh, the tunnel, who, yeah. He, the tunnel. Yeah, he's unknown at the time, but he would go on to do about, I think it's what, nine or ten Fast and the Furious movies right now, a guy by the name yeah. of Vin Diesel. Tell yep. us that story mm-hmm. of how you were, okay. you know, shaking down that club and how you went to meet him right. originally. We had a guy, Willie Light who was with us, Jewish guy. He was with the old-time Jewish gangsters. He told us about this club up uh, up in Manhattan called The Tunnel that they were building. And it's in our territory. And Peter Gation is the guy who had it. And his partner, Bozer. So we went up there. And I went to talk to Peter Gation, but we had to talk to Bozer. And I'm talking to Bozer. And we're trying to explain to him, this is my territory and everything. And this guy comes walking over. You know, muscular guy, staring there like this. And I'm looking at him. And I looked at Willie Light and I says, This guy, I said, This guy looks like he's gonna, if he makes a move, I'm gonna drop him right here. Because I'll put a bullet right in his fucking head. But I said it enough that Boza heard me. And I kept telling this guy, Boza, you know, you gotta come up with an envelope. You're in my territory over here, and it's not right. You didn't get in touch with us, and so on and so forth. So he's there and he starts. I see him, he's edging, he's edging in, and I looked at him, I says, it's a bad mistake. I just looked at him, I said, bad mistake, and he stopped cold, and he looked at me, and he, and he looked at me, and I could see the look on his face as he did this, either, should I go after this guy, or I don't? 
If I go after this guy, I think this guy's got a surprise for me that I'm not going to expect, which he knew I definitely had a surprise for him. I had a fucking, I had a 45. I would have shot him right there on the fucking spot. He went to move again. I says, don't do it. And he stopped. I says, don't do it. I says, think carefully. I said, don't do it. I says, you save yourself a big heartache. And he just looked and he just stood there. And he, you could see the look on his face. It was like he wanted to make a move. He definitely wanted to make a move, but something was telling him, if you make a move, it might be your last move you're ever going to make. Right. And he knew. He knew that would have been the last move. I would have blew him away right there on the spot. Bowser didn't want to know nothing. I'm not paying him. Okay, fuck you. I got in touch with the union guys I know. I said, you know what? And I got in touch with a guy I had in the city. I said, listen, this is what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. The guy didn't want to cooperate. They went up there. They wrote him up over $150,000 in fines. Wow. They gave what they were building. And then the, they stopped construction. All the construction guys that I knew, the labor guys, they were in the unions. They were told to stop, and they stopped working. Now, Bozo gets in touch with Willie Light to see me. I said, what can I do? He goes, I know you did it. You had it done. What are you talking about? The guys ain't work. I got the I got the summons hundred fifty thousand dollars. Some of the guys ain't work were behind schedule. You had some doing. I said, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, because you said this is your neighborhood, this is your baby. I said, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, but if you need my help, just come and ask me. I'll see if I can do something for you. He goes, I need to have this done. I gotta have a. He goes, I'll be very grateful if you have this done. If you can help me out in any way, shape, or form. I said, I'm not guaranteeing that. Let me see what I can do. I got the guy from the city. He squashed the fines, got rid of them. The union guys put all the guys back to work. Two days after that happened, Willie Light holds me up. He says, listen, Bozo wants to see me. I just got to go see him. So just be careful. It's all right. Bozo gets in the car. They're talking. And uh, he's telling Willie Light thank me, to thank me very much for what I did. Willie says, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, well, Andy, he goes, look, I don't know. He goes, if you say this, I don't know. Anyway, Bozo gets out of the car, and he drops an envelope on the seat of the car. The, the envelope was about that fat. So Willie calls me up. He goes, the guy dropped an envelope in my car. I said, all right, I'll come and meet you. I mean, you might see the envelope. Willie Light didn't touch the envelope. He was afraid to touch it. <laughs> the envelope was about two and a half, three inches thick. I said, Willie, what are you worried about? I opened up all hundreds. All hundreds. I mean, I think it was about 50,000, 60,000 in there, somewhere around there. I gave Willie Light a piece. I gave a piece to the guy in the unions. I gave a piece to the guy in the in the city. And I had the rest. Now, Bozer says he wants to see me. I go up. I see Bozer. And who's standing with Bozer? Vin Diesel again. This guy, because he was the bouncer, head bouncer there. Yeah. And he looked at me this time. But this time when he looked at me, he went like this to me. He nodded to me. Not to him. But he stood as this. He didn't move from where he was. Bozer comes up to me and says, listen. He says, I appreciate everything you've done for me. I said, listen, Bozer, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, I didn't do nothing. He goes, well, that's, well, I'm glad it got done. He goes, you come here. He goes, we're open seven days a week. You come bring as many people as you want. He goes, you never pay up here. That's okay. He goes, and he goes, at the end of every week, I will be very grateful to you. Okay. I used to go there, have my car, never pay the bill, 
But I didn't abuse it. I didn't bring like 20, 30 people. It'd be like me, a girl, and another couple, let's say. Right. That was it. The most, there were six of us at the most. I wasn't going to abuse it. So one night, after the first week, bartender comes up to me, the head bartender. He goes, Anthony, uh, you came with a car? He says, yeah. He goes, where's your car? I said, up there. I said, that car right there. He goes, can you open it for me? I says, yeah. So I open it. Boop. The guy opens the door, goes in the car, comes out, closes the door, comes over to me. He says, when you go in the car, he says, check your glove compartment. It's okay. This went on every week. They used to put an envelope in my glove compartment every week. Wow. 10,000, 12,000, 13,000. I clockwork. So you were making Can't a complain. killing off that. That was only one of the clubs I was doing. Then, now, yeah. I, I booked two. I got the thing with Todd, me and Carmine Lombardoza. I had all the clubs with the Shadlock business, too. Right. So t- tell us a little bit about that book, man. Like, where can our listeners get it? Because we're, we're going to have, like I said, some more shows. We're going to get into some of your mm-hmm. relationships with specific guys like Henry Hill, um, you yeah. know, different guys and your experiences with them. Cause we, we can't fit it all in one show. It's impossible. So we're going to have to do a yeah. few, but tell our audience and our listeners where they can go to find your book and you know, what avenues is the best to try to track you that can down. Go, you can go to Amazon. You can go to Barnes and Nobles. You can get in touch with page publishing, or if you go to any brick and mortar bookstore, you tell them the title of the book when the bullet hits the bone and they can order for you. Plus I have a podcast out called the enforcer. Yes. And I, I follow that as well. It's very good. Modify him all that. I just want to say one thing. I want to give a shout out to Liz uh, Coppola. All right. Number one. And number two, she gave me some information today. I'm not going to say who the man is because we're going to save that for another day. Right. That there is a, a well, a well, well known, uh, gentleman mm-hmm. who was involved in the mob, heavily, heavily involved in the mob, who has a show and a book and everything else. And Liz was speaking with him about me. And the man turned around and says, is his father Frank? They used to call him top. She says, yes. He goes, I knew all about his father. He goes, his father was a heavy hitter. His father was a, his father was the real deal. This man confirmed it. So everybody who was talking about my father whether they didn't know him or whatever, you know what it is? You got confirmation with this guy. I'm not going to say who it is because Liz told me not to mention who the guy's name is. And I believe she's told you today yeah. also. Yeah, I know who it is, and I'm not yeah. going to mention his name yeah. either. We'll probably no. we'll save that for a certain event, maybe try to get you guys on a show together. But Yeah, we are. Yeah. We're, we're going to definitely do something together, according to her. And, uh, you know, I appreciate it. You know, but see, everybody, like I says, for whatever their reason is, they don't want to believe it, which, listen, I don't tell anybody you have to believe what I say. I, I don't. This was my life. I did it. I lived it. I done it. Okay? People will want to ridicule me, and they're going to want to try to chop me down. One, maybe because they're jealous. Two, because maybe they always wanted to do something like this, but they never had the guts to do it. Three, they want to try to make a little name for themselves. Or they want to try to make me look bad. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. I said what I said. My story hasn't changed. My life has not changed. You believe me, fine. If you don't, fine. Everybody's entitled to an opinion. I don't care. See, I don't care. See, the thing is this. I don't care what people think about me. Because I look at it this way. You can talk all you want. I know what i done. What did you do? You're trying to make me look bad. And half of them don't know anything 
about what some guys call organized crime, who call it the mafia, who calls it what calls it the nostra, who calls it the life. They only know about what they hear or what they read. Mm-hmm. That's what they know. They hear what they read and stories they hear. Like I got one guy insisting that my cousin Mac is six foot four. What? My cousin Mac was about five foot ten, five foot eleven at the most. There's a picture of him walking with Carmine Persico. And if you see the picture, it's on an angle. And it was taken from a rooftop. It's a surveillance picture with the FBI. Carmine Persico was five foot seven. Mm-hmm. My cousin Mac was about five ten, five eleven. He was 250 pounds. But if you look at the picture angled, it looks like he's taller. But then there's another picture where they're all walking, and you have Jerry Lang in the front, my cousin Mac, and Vincent Lang, Jerry Lang's son. Now, Vincent and my cousin Mac are about the same size. Vincent was about maybe 5'9", 5'10". He's about the same size as my cousin Mac. And my and Jerry Lang was like about six foot. The guy's insistent to me. I said, he's my cousin. I know what he was. But everybody in my family will tell you, my cousin was no bigger than 5'11 at the maximum, my cousin Mac. Totally was. He wasn't six foot four or anything. But oh, the picture we got, the picture's on an angle. Any idiot can see. It's on an angle where Junior looks small and he looks taller. So this is an FBI surveillance picture. But people just want to, are now like you have a lot of these new young guys who say, ah, we never heard of him. We don't know him. Well, considering I'm like, 25 years older than most of them, <laughs> 22 years older than most of them. And that when I was on Cabell Street and 3rd Avenue in the diplomat, they were like maybe <clears throat> two years old, three years old. Some of them weren't even born yet. Yeah. All right. And now all of a sudden being the family needs men, they're pulling all these guys in and they're making them. You understand? They're making them. They're not following the rules. They're making them. Right. And now they all think they're gangsters because they got made and they know better than me. They know this. Let them talk. They don't know. I could bring up guys' names to them. They would not know who these guys are. Right. Believe me, in the family. They would not know who the guys are. And these are guys that I was with every day. I could bring up certain people's names and they would say, well, who's that? I don't know who that Well, That guy's in our family. You're supposed to be a tough guy. You're supposed to know him. How come you don't know who he is? Yeah. Some people, man, I think just, uh, you know, they don't want certain people to to tell their stories. They don't want to give certain people their clout, um, you know, for whatever the reason, I don't know what the reasons are why people are like that. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It baffles me, you know, sometimes, but you know, that's, that's them and that's their problem. Um, your title of your book, when the bullet hits the bone, and we're going to actually put a link to that in the show notes, for this show yeah. so people can go click on and then pick it up if they want to. How did you come up with that title? Just out of curiosity. All right. Yeah. Okay. I'll tell you the story on the other show. There was a, a thing where we had the, uh, the contract we got for Saturday night fever at the two, at the, the 802 club, which became 2001 Odyssey. And there was a bit of a problem. And naturally, you know, guy, a, a certain guy took exception to it and got some guys to try to whack me and hit my cousin. And when I was outside my cousin's house, we just pulled up in my car. I'm ready to get out. This car pulls up and they started shooting at us. And I got my cousin. I dragged him out of the car. You know, we couldn't get out. I had a gun on me. I got up and started firing. And I got hit right around here. The spot is right here where the bullet went in. And if you look on the lump up here, part of the bullet is still up in here in me. 
okay. in my neck, in the bone. And that's how I got. And I was thinking of the title. I was thinking of a title for the book. And there's a group called Golden Earring. And they have a song called The Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And in the song, it says, the words are, when the bullet hits the bone. As soon as I heard that, what flashed into my head was when I got shot. This, I said, that's the title of my book, When the Bullet Hits the Bone. And that's how I got it. All right. Well, so but you got to listen to the song. Listen to it. It's called, it's called The Twilight Zone by Golden Earring. Listen to the whole song. You see, that's how I got the title. <laughs> All right, we'll certainly do that. Folks, if anybody wants to pick up Anthony's book, When the Bullet Hits the Bone, as I said earlier, we will have a link for it so you can click on it, go straight, and pick that up in our show notes. We're also going to put a link for his own podcast, The Enforcer, there as well. I'm a subscriber to that. It is a very good podcast. It's one of the only podcasts now that I've run in my own that I have time, I make time, rather, to listen to. Um, So it is very good. We're going to put that in there for you guys and go subscribe for that. Anthony, we got a lot more to get to, man, but uh, I want to say, you know, how much I appreciate you coming on the show today. We're going to do a lot more, but, uh, you know, I'm glad you can make it by, my friend. My pleasure. Believe me. I appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, where I am Hollywood Wade, that was Brooklyn's own Anthony Ramundi, and unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Crime and Entertainment. Anthony, we appreciate it, my friend. Take care. I'll see you on the flip side. Yes, sir. Well, boy, oh boy, what an episode that was. And you heard it, folks. The man almost took out Ben Diesel. I mean, I don't know that he would have ridded the world of 28 Fast and the Furious movies had he pulled the trigger on Ben Diesel in that club that day for crying out loud. So, I mean, just interesting story all the way around, man. Um, You know, Ramundi, uh, like we mentioned in there a time or two, I'm not going to drop any names but he and his father's, you know, reputation have been verified by someone high up in the rankings of the mob. So I'll leave that to those guys. If they want to get together and do a show on that or, you know, do a release, it's not my place to, uh, you know, tell other people's, uh, you know, opinions, but I do have it on very good authority that him and his father's reputation has been verified of being major players in the mob and well-respected guys and hitters. You can hear about that episode right there. Uh, Ramundi's had a few of those up under his belt. So, you know, very respected. And I like Ramundi. I really do. I think he's a cool guy. We've had a lot of conversations off air. Matter of fact, when I head down to New York in a few weeks, we're going to get together and uh, maybe bring you guys some different sort of content, some things nobody's really ever done with Ramondi. So a lot of good things brewing here on Crime and Entertainment. We hope all you people are enjoying these episodes as we're putting them out. If you're not, go on and subscribe to our YouTube channel, folks. Give us a like, a follow. Uh, that really helps us out. You know, boost up the audience. Share it, too. Share it on your social medias there. Let's help spread the word. You know, we don't ask you for any money over here in Crime and Entertainment, and I can tell you doing all this stuff, it ain't cheap, folks, but I don't ask for any money. I just ask you guys to share it. Um, you know, let people know you're enjoying the show. If you're more of an audio person, which I get it, a lot of people are busy these days. You don't really have the time to sit down and watch on YouTubes. We're on all the major audio platforms, folks. We're on Spotify, Apple, the Stitcher app. Stitcher's a really good one for podcasts because you don't need a subscription for that. You can have Apple, Android, it doesn't matter. And you can go and catch all of our podcasts from the very first one all the way to current on that particular app. 
Now, above that, you know, we're also on the Facebook. So you can go like us on Facebook there. We're also on Instagram. You can go give us a follower over there. So please, folks, that's what we ask of you. You know, we don't want to get in your pockets. We don't want to extort you, as some people in the mob did. We don't want to hold you up. We just want you to share the show, share it with your friends. Tell us how much you're enjoying it. If there's a guest you would like us to try to get, let us know. Drop us a comment. Drop us, a, you know, a DM. Say, hey, can you go after this guy? We'll do what we can to get him on the show. We're trying to bring you guys excellent content, and we hope we are doing that as well. So, folks, I am Hollywood Wade. That was Anthony Ramundi. And, unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Crime and Entertainment. Crime and Entertainment.